Hi, welcome back to The CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor of CIO. Well, in case you missed it, last Thursday we held the fifth CIO 50. It was an extraordinary field, reflecting an extraordinary year. Unsurprisingly, we had healthcare, retail, education, government, financial services sectors featuring quite prominently. As COVID created opportunities for tech leaders in these sectors to shine or fail like never before, Joining me now is the creator and project lead on the CIO 50, Byron Connolly. Welcome back to the CIO show, Byron. How do you feel? Oh, I'll tell you what, David, I am uh, I'm pretty relieved that, it, that it's over. It's, it's many bet. months worth of work, yeah. uh, many words to write. Um, but, yes. you know, at the beginning of the program, we actually have to chase people to, we have to chase CIOs and other tech leaders around the country to be part of it. And we were a bit worried this year because we didn't know what effect COVID would have on I guess people's ability to to nominate, but as it turns out, um, we we encouraged a lot of people to a lot of CIOs to to tell their stories, their COVID stories, mm. uh, and we we got some really good COVID related entries this year, and, and we got the the numbers that we needed, so that was fantastic. Yeah, and it was it was an interesting story in terms of um, of gender diversity and cultural diversity as well. I mean, you and I have spoken a lot and spoken with other people in the industry about. You know, why there are so few women in the IT industry. It's a complicated question, but this year, of course, on a positive note, we had three women in the top 10, which is pretty amazing. We did have three women in the top 10, which was fantastic, um, which I think was one up from last year. Um, so I was really happy about that, although I think we in, in the entire list we only had about 11, so we're, we're not really... You know, we're in our fifth year now and, and, and we're not getting the numbers uh, of women that we need. And, you know, I, I'm not really sure why that's the case, but hopefully in, 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 in subsequent years um, we'll, we'll start to see more women on the list as well. And we had a bit of cultural diversity too, which was great. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, stay tuned, everyone, because Byron is going to be interviewing each of our top three winners for this year's CIO 50. It's going to make interesting listening, so stay with us. Thank you. I'm here with John Sutherland, who and John is the Chief Information Officer at Ramsey Healthcare. And John took our number one position uh, this year in the CO50 list. Uh, and uh, it, it, it was a great nomination around a lot of the great work that, that Ramsey had done uh, in 2020 uh, in its response to COVID. And there were some real human stories in there. So it stood out from a lot of the other entries. John, welcome to the CIO show. Thank you. Thank you, Byron. Great to speak with you. And great to have you here too. Let me start off by asking why you entered the CO50 this year, why you, you felt the need to, I guess, get some, some, some recognition for yourself and your team there at Ramsey. Well, I, I, it, look, it probably was um, in part due to the year that we've had, this, 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 this um, outstanding year 2020 uh, and the curveball that COVID-19 has thrown all of us and and I know, uh, I know that our team, like all the other IT teams across Australia and in different industries, have been really um, pulling out all stops to support their business. And in, for us and our business, it's really supporting the, the more than one million patients that come through our doors in our surgical hospitals and mental health clinics and rehab uh, centres. So an opportunity to showcase uh, what technology has meant um, uh, for our business, our patients, our doctors, and our staff, and uh, it, you know, it was a great opportunity to do that. And uh, and I know that they've been really chuffed with the recognition that uh, that the that, that the award has given them. Yeah, and it's well deserved. Listen, um, one of the things that you did talk about in your nomination was that 
you know, I guess the pandemic has changed the way clinicians and other hospital staff think mm-hmm. about the role of technology in their working lives and across the wider healthcare sector. Do you think that that doctors and and uh, other hospital staff and people across the whole whole healthcare sector have a different view now? Do you think that they're finally, I guess, buying into the benefits of technology and how it can help help um, the, the the sector at large? Uh, most definitely, um, it's uh, you know. <laughs> Never waste the crisis, as they say, uh, and uh, you know. Though in some, though in some cases, it's given validation to to all of those stakeholders that you've mentioned about um, the need to uh, be embracing technology further. Um, for others, it's kind of shaken them out of their comfort zone, yeah. um, and I guess the hand's kind of been forced to see, you know, what is possible. Uh, and uh, uh, so, I think that by and large, people have been really pleasantly surprised and. Uh, on with what's been possible this year um, through all of the various initiatives, you know, from from you know a myriad of telehealth services yeah. um, through to kind of more sophisticated use cases in in hospitals. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that they, I think that the opportunity has kind of uh, been stirred, um, and I'm pretty confident that that is really going to be sustained. There's just going to be this awakening will continue. We're not out of COVID yet. Um, yeah. You know, we've got we've got you know the, the, the promise of their vaccines with high efficacy rates, uh, but uh, but the role of technology in healthcare, uh, I think, is uh, the stakes that have been higher, and that's just only going to continue. Yeah, for sure. Now, I wanted to talk about virtual healthcare services. I know that they've been around for a little while, but you you kind of upped your use of virtual healthcare services during the pandemic. Mm. For obvious reasons, you know, people had to stay in their homes, and people had to you really couldn't get out to, to hospitals unless they were getting really sick. Um, mm. How were these services received, and and do you see them augmenting face to face healthcare services next year and into the future? Yeah, de- definitely, that's the case, uh, and. Um, you know, I think as, as I said on our, on the on, when we were just speaking on the awards night, um, the, the appetite there for these kinds of digital services, or has been there. There's always been this strong appetite, um, but there've been a few different hurdles that have prevented the uptake. Um, you know, some have been kind of technological. Uh, some have been, I guess, uh, patients and consumers of these services' level of comfort with using them. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that's another silver lining of, of, of COVID-19 is that, that everybody from a young child through to, to the retired folk uh, have um, a much greater level of comfort and ease with using uh, even consumer-grade, you know, teleconferencing services like Zooms and the FaceTimes and so forth. Yeah. So, um, so I think that shift that we saw... Uh, you know, well, starting about 10 or 12 years ago with the advent of the smartphone and the iPhone and how where our view of technology and how rapidly technology changes, and that's definitely the case in these smartphones. Yeah. Uh, that's starting to kind of leach its way into the enterprise and with the services that we provide. Um, so very good uptake. The other, of course, important thing in the Australian context is uh, is kind of how people are paid for providing services and yeah. That has also seen uh, a real transformation from a government, a Commonwealth government um, public policy setting in terms of um, the Medicare benefit scheme and, and how physicians can be remunerated by holding teleconference 
consultation. Mm. So, so how does that happen now for phys- physicians? I mean, how 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 are they getting paid for those sorts of uh, remote virtual uh, consultations? What's 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 changed? Well, so so pr- previously, the criteria for uh, for a doctor to run a uh, a teleconsult was very restricted. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, as I understand it, really for for, for kind of um, what you might call edge cases, people that are um, uh, out in rural communities and just it's really impossible for them to get ready access to medical practitioners. Um, uh, Now, through necessity of the lockdowns and the isolations and quarantining and so forth and uh, the encouragement for us to be avoiding moving around the cities, um, the criteria was loosened significantly, meaning that uh, the doctors were able to um, effectively bill for their services through Medicare. Yeah. Okay. So that's a bit of a different, a different way to do it at the moment. Now, the other thing that actually really impressed me about your nomination and the, um, the your nomination this year um, was the work that you're doing with startups. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I know that there's a local AI startup that that you're working mm. with. Do you want to start talking about what's happening there on that front in terms of how these types of you know, analytics and AI technologies are actually helping uh, clinicians with their work? Absolutely. Look, this is a very, very exciting field for medicine. Uh, and, uh, yeah. you know, with, with the advent of mass storage and mass computing power and very sophisticated learning algorithms, yeah. um, uh, digital computers are really able to process huge amounts of data and look for, tra- for trends and patterns and so forth. And that is really helping to augment the the um, the diagnostic uh, tool set that, yeah. the, that the physicians have, uh, and help them lead to help lead them to better decision making. So it's not a replacement for the for the doctor for the physician or the specialist. Uh, it's really just yet another tool in their toolkit. And one of the um, so one of what we're seeing in Ramsey is a real a real interest and in, uh, uh, and really following through on. Uh, Becoming uh, investors, taking you know equity positions, partnerships with technology companies, yeah. rather than just um, kind of licensing some of those those products and services. And one of the ones that's really most exciting and it's terrific. This is just another example of Australian ingenuity and innovation. Is a company called Harrison AI, yeah. founded by uh, a couple of brothers uh, here, uh, based here in Sydney. Um, it's startup mode, very, very uh, uh, well subscribed in terms of the capital uh, raising. Uh, and they've got a couple of really fabulous use cases in the medical space. Um, one is being able to predict the viability of embryos for uh, in IVF. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's leading to a 20% increase in, in, in pregnancies uh, as, a, as a result of uh, sophisticated digital image processing of, 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 of embryos. Um, and uh, uh, so that's one example. And another one, again, along the theme of image processing is looking at CT scans uh, and uh, looking for, for signs of cancers yeah. uh, and uh, brain CT scans and so forth. So that's, uh, that's uh, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more uh uh, to say about that, so Harrison AI yeah, will sure. be saying a lot more about that in the coming coming weeks. But you know, very exciting and and just another example of of uh, uh, being able to partner with these technology companies with this kind of latest round of the technology revolution, which is in machine learning and AI. 
Yeah, and it's only going to get more interesting as the years mm. as the years go too. So, listen, thank you very much, John. We will leave it there. Uh, congratulations again for taking the number one spot this year, and and I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Thanks very much, Brian. Great to speak with you. You too. Have a good day. Bye. We enable any organisation to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies, protecting the identity of both workforces and customers. Connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation. Okay, I'm here with Angela Coble, who's Director of Business Technology at Johnson & Johnson. And Angela made the number two spot this year in the CO50 list, uh, moving up 16 places from 2019, which was a great achievement. Welcome to the CO Show, Angela. Oh, thank you very much. It's just a real pleasure to be here, and I think I am still in shock. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's good to have you here. Um, I wanted to start off by asking Angela why uh, you made the decision this year, I guess, to enter the CO50 program and, and highlight the achievements um, that you and, and your team um, have delivered this year. Yeah, really great question, Byron. And I guess it comes down to a couple of things. As a, as a technology leader, we need to be amplifying our peer group and the more voices that can be heard and the more experiences shared actually provide really great role models for others coming through. So there was there was an obligation for me personally, like I felt that this was the, the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But I must admit, I did have a great conversation with um, my managing director and we'd been through, as with most people, you know, one amazingly, hopefully unrepeatable year. Yeah, <laughs> and, for sure. And I thought, yeah, and I told her that this was coming up and um, she said, you know, and let's do it and and I'll, I want to be your nominator, which I thought was just amazing. So so I guess, you know, a, apart from amplifying some amazing things that have occurred in, in our peer group, it was also about acknowledging the phenomenal year that the technology organisation in J&J's had. And that's not just, yeah. you know, that are around me. That's that's all of us. This took a, a real tribe effort to get across the line and to deliver and continue to stabilise our organisation in what was just a you know a year like no other. I, I think I've yeah. said a number of times. Yeah, it absolutely was. Now, and and one of the things I guess that impressed me about um, uh, about your nomination there at uh, Johnson and Johnson Medical was that you know during COVID you capitalised on your relationship with, co- with colleagues in China to learn from their response and prepare to bring various applications to Australia and New Zealand. I guess I'd, I'd, I'd like to know what you learnt from from people who were working, you know, in the country that was at the epicenter of the initial COVID outbreak. What 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 sort of lessons did you learn from from the people in China there? Uh, there there was many, but but I think one of the biggest ones that I took away, and this was the very first conversation. I asked what type of hardware would be required to enable that, um, enable our organisations to work differently. And the commentary that came back from my peers was, and the, the one thing that we learnt as an organisation who is very present in an office and desktop-based, the ability to have laptops is actually what they learnt it was going to be critical straight yeah. away. And their market... And it was surprising to me because I guess you take for granted how forward-thinking 
you know, some markets are, and Australia's in that when it comes to our technology leaders. Yeah. We deployed laptops years ago. Like it wasn't a decision that I had to make. I just basically decided what level of laptop I wanted to deploy to upgrade everybody to, to be ready for a cloud-based organization. So yeah. that was the biggest one. I thought, okay, well, we've ticked a really great box. The other one was um, immediately, you know, contact tracing. And I went, actually, that's brilliant. And, and I started thinking through how we could develop something that was a bit unknown at the time, like not even the COVID tracing apps were starting to come out because this was back in early Feb and I'm sitting there going, what what systems do we have access to yeah. where we can at least be able to know where our people have been should something happen? So just some really great lessons um, from them straight away. Yeah, for <clears> sure. And you actually did bring some apps to Australia um, from there, if I'm if I'm right about that. Did, did they, how, how did they help your field staff, I guess, connect with surgeons and, and other customers of the organisation? Yeah, so the initial app, it, it wasn't so much about connecting with our customers at the time. It was about in protecting our employees and enabling them different. So that was the very first kind of conversations in January because I knew that, you know, we, we would have to be able to, support our employees for them to then be able to continue to support our customers. So I was looking at where first could I do things without major disruption externally. Yeah. So, so the apps were really around to the point I just made earlier, you know, how could I protect where they've been? So because, I don't know, I forget where I've been last week, let alone That's two right, weeks. Yeah. And, and so we were generating those kind of um, reports quite quickly. And the other one was capacity apps. So I was looking at, all right, if we get to a situation where I can't have volumes of people in spaces, I need to be able to log capacity. So that was a couple of the immediate ones that I took um, advice and guidance from my colleagues, you know, in, in Asia who were going through it before us, it China and then Japan. And really went, okay, we, we will take that and we will shape it for our Australia and New Zealand market, um, clearly, because New Zealand was under my remit as well. Yeah. The external piece was really about what could we do that was off the shelf that people would feel comfortable with, that whilst they're going through this enormous disruption in, in the environment and potential for such an amount of people flooding through hospital you know, doorways, yeah. what could leverage that would enable that to happen and it and it was so funny um john was one of the first people i reached out to would you believe our number one <laughs> yeah john sutherland yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it was just to um you know start talking with peers and there was you know various others in in melbourne and in publics and privates that i started to talk to just to say this is coming how are we going to respond and of course always putting the sanctity of life um ahead of all else so mm. It was a, really was an industry response, and I was so proud of the networks that we had formed before this because that's what actually enabled health to get through this. Yeah, for <clears> sure. <throat> Do you think that the COVID experience, I guess, has changed the way that people outside the IT group think about technology, think about the role of technology in organisations? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, had you have asked me that five, six years ago when I first took on this role, yeah. and it, Absolutely. Like, you know, we were seen as back-end um, hygiene factory delivery, basically. Um, yeah. Take it and, and spit it back out. But I will, you know, give amazing credit to my managing directors over the years um, in J&J Med Devices here because they've never looked at me as 
a technology leader. They've looked at me as a business leader who just happens to know tech. Yeah. And so that really, and, and you know, that's, that is me too, stepping up with Curry, doing something a little bit different and showcasing our, our talent in technology in a different way that they are business leaders yeah. and that they solve business issues. It just happens to be that we either enable or solve with technology. So it does take having some really robust conversations early on, but there was no time in, in this last 12 months that I was looked at just as a the, the you know business technology leader or the CIO for the market. I was looked at as someone who understood our business really well and was going to help get us through this with tech. Now, I do need to ask you a, qu- uh, a question lastly about the uh, participation of women in the tech sector, particularly in, in senior roles. I know that you've done a lot of work in that area. Uh, mm. It's very clear that you've had a lot of success. I think with the you now the CO50 is in our fifth year now and we, we've still got a painfully low number of women in the list and um, we can't actually work out why. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, it's, it's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And I yes. guess this is why I am so focused on completing this doctoral research because I actually don't understand. And and for me, this is about data-driven analysis. Like, what is it? Is it, an, is it a throughput? Is it an input? Is it role models? Some of the initial, um, you know, research outcomes I'm getting is that it is actually role models. And so this is yeah. where something like the CIO 50, this amazing award, you know, program that has been around for a number of years actually helps to showcase role models. And the yeah. fact that, you know, uh, we, we've had a number, you know, I'm not the first person, first female to make number two. You know, I think it was the first year we had um, an amazing female leader Indeed. make number Kim two. Wen from yeah, That's exactly. Right. Mm. So, so I think, for me, it's 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 really about uncovering the business issue, and and I'm very open minded about what that's going to look like. So there, it, it may not necessarily be a gender issue; it may actually be a business issue, and we need to tackle that with the right programs at an Australian government at like a federal level yeah. to ensure creating the pathways that we need to create to get more women into STEM careers, and especially as you know, the, the passion for me is isolating the tech component of that and really understanding why there's not more of us um, leading uh, this amazing technology function. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I hope through your doctoral research you get an answer. Are you still doing that at the moment, are you? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I've got about 18 months. Publications will start to come out, um, and, and I you know, have to have a shout-out to my USQ team because you know, our publications will start to hit the deck next year as the research starts to get analysed, yeah. uh, and I expect to have you know, frameworks and programs ready in 2022. So it's not a it's not a short term thing to solve. And I, I suspect if it was it that easy, it would have already been done. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, so now I'm really looking forward to. It. And by all means, um, you know, this group, the CIO Top 50, and and your amazing organisation will have access to that research as well. So well, good luck with that, Angela. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much for spending time with us today on the CIO show and congratulations again for, for hitting number number two in the list this year, our fifth year. Uh, Thank and you. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. And this has been really great. So th- just a big shout out. Thank you to the CIO 50 team. This is a phenomenal way to recognise talent and leaders and provide role models, as I said. So keep it up. Thank right. you. Thanks, Angela. Bye for now.
Okay, I'm here now with Gordon Dunsford, the Chief Information Technology Officer at New South Wales Police. And Gordon, uh, play, and his team placed number three this year uh, in the CO50. Uh, I think Gordon came into the uh, program a few years ago and has, has moved right up to um, the top five. Um, Gordon, how are you today? I'm awesome. And yeah, it's been a, a big week um, having picked up that um, number three for the, for the team here at Police, which has come a long way. Yeah, well, congratulations again. Hey, listen, I wanted to start off by asking you uh, why you made the decision to, to, to enter the CO50 this year. What, what, what was the impetus for it? Look, we, um, I would, would say, police, um, I would say a bit like the submarine service. We're under the surface IT and police. We don't um, put our periscope up very often, and this was an opportunity to put our periscope up and, and sort of, Look at how we're going, and um, in that in that context, uh, you know, I think the team has done some amazing things. Um, you know, we built a strategy three years ago and put it in play, and certainly this year it came into its own in terms of bushfires and and, and uh, the coronavirus response um, and operation by police. And we, re- I think, we really supported them at at speed. And I just thought, look, you know, put that periscope up with the awards and and put something in, and it's great to be you know get the acknowledgement uh, for the team and, and what what we've done in the last uh, few years. Yeah. Yeah, so you've had a few challenges over the past 12 months and we'll get to those uh, in a moment. But I guess it's probably an understatement to say that your tech team has a much better reputation across the force now than it did when you joined in early 2018. I mean, was it difficult to get police who were, I guess, previously disconnected from the IT group to engage with new technology? I mean, was it was that a, t- a big ask? Uh, look, it was, and I think, look, they were... Uh, look, I had great sponsorship from the commissioner right the way through and I had a very, very hungry... Um, you know, team that was there in, inside police. So I had to bring together what they call commands, a couple of them into into what's now called digital technology innovation as a business unit or as a command. And um, and they were chomping at the bit to um, to get some direction and leadership and and, uh, and and plot a way forward. So you know, putting a north star out there with where to go and providing that leadership and, and then the team coming in behind that and, and really you know going forward off that is um, is being you know. Really important, keeping it very simple in terms of our strategy has been one of the things we've done and we've built the platform behind it and aligned our operating model and, and, and the like to that as uh, that strategy and, and the like as well. So I think people have just been, after years of feeling you know, very much disconnected and not uh, you know in, involved and aligned and appreciated by the business to sort of um, you know, have that fresh start and you know, have a new leadership team because I've, I've got a completely new leadership team underneath me underneath me and supporting yeah. me. I think that the broader group uh, as well as the business have absolutely um, been just sort of going, right, we've got to give these guys a go because, you know, technology is just so important to law enforcement, you know, going forward in terms of, you know, cyber crime and online, you know, crimes that you, you, we're seeing more prevalent these days in terms of online fraud and, and the like. So, um, mm. so technology has got to be, uh, it's, you know, there and it's got to be credible, it's got to deliver and it's got to do, what it, do these things at speed and that was very much a part of our strategy. Yeah, for sure. Now, you did talk about at the at the event last week um, that you, you know, had a lot of success last year using technology to get the right information uh, to to police to solve a murder case in Sydney. You caught the eye of the elite state, state crime squad investigating arson during the bushfires uh, over yeah. the summer season. Um, I guess for the benefit of people that 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 are listening now that didn't um, that weren't um, part of the virtual event last week, can you talk about you know the role that technology has played in in, in both of those cases? Yeah, look, it's played a really big role in terms of both harvesting you know a huge volume of evidence and, and witness statements from. You know, thousands of passengers and crew from the Ruby Princess and the coronavirus sense, but also 
um, you know, being able to, to ingest and manage uh, both in a, a welfare sense, um, you know, people throughout their 14-day quarantine. When we get, you know, literally, you know, a few thousand people a day through New South Wales and Sydney as a port um, of, of, of origin into yeah. Australia and people then generally disperse from there around the country. So, um, so a lot of the things we've had to do in, in New South Wales is, is being, you know, being open as well during this coronavirus to some extent, trying to balance out the you know, economy with with, uh, with the pandemic. You know, we, we, we've had a, a big task to uh, to, uh, to 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 do that. So in terms of um, you know these these big state crime command sort of strike force sort of things that that, that get stood up around major crimes. Yeah, look, you know, being invited in there is just never has never been heard of, particularly for a civilian workforce within a law enforcement organisation. You know the uniformed or sworn officers versus civilians is you know, there's always been historically a big big um, I guess um, divide there and to sort of um, yeah. have them invite us into that that world and, and and ask our advice and you know how do you do this and how do these tools and how does the data yeah. come together and these platforms you've got now you know how can you, you and so being able to show them um, how we can visualize the data and bring together our bushfire you know season um, from yeah. start to finish and, and you know put that onto our analytics platform, overlaid on our geospatial platform and be able to then ultimately present it um, to a coroner's court in, in, in a period of months is something that they would have taken, you know, literally years um, to pull yeah. together, let alone things like CCTV from a murder investigation such as the uh, Merton A uh, murder um, that went on in the city with the crate, milk crate murder, you know, yeah. that sort of stuff, 14,000 hours of CCTV to literally sit down yeah. by the second, a little dark room and, and catalogue all those seconds worth of the 14,000 hours of it. You know, a team of detectives would have taken literally a year plus. So it's about sure. to ingest it in about five hours and, and mm. then process it. It's, you know, quite a big Navita, you know, GPU, quad GPU petaflop box, so, which we have, mm. uh, sounds like a 747 taking off <laughs> um, when you fire it up. You know, that, yeah. that sort of thing is um, is amazing. It gets results at speed and saves time and ultimately gets the victim and victims and communities, um, you know, and ultimately the families of victims answers faster, which is what we're trying to do with technology and please get those results faster and and, um, and, yeah. and, and uh, help put people at ease in terms of the community. So the police must have been amazed by the amount of time that they've been able to save. I mean, you talk about something mm-hmm. that used to take them 12 months and is now can be ingested in five hours. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah it is. I mean, even simple things every day, you know, taking a witness statement. You know, I've had a DV, I was, went on a truck. Uh, with, with some young female constables not long ago and they were out in Western Sydney in a, in a, d- a domestic violence incident and the victim there, a lady, young lady, um, you know, she wasn't looking very good after the incident and, you know, they took a witness statement on a mobile pole, which is essentially a mobile phone, um, recorded it, you know, an officer interviewing her in, 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 you know, out in the field. You know, 20-minute interview, typically they'll spend two, three hours, um, you know, sometimes at home um, or send it off for someone else at home in a tracksuit listening to it and actually, you know, typing it out, listening to the to the recording off the Moby Pole. Now, you know, yeah. we put through our Insights platform, which does the same thing as that video stitching thing, you know, a simple, you know, auto-transcribed capability or voice-to-text capability. So they can literally take the WAV file off the Moby Pole or the body-worn and put it in a little drop box and it spits them back a PDF or a Word document or whatever format they want. Literally yeah. in seconds, and that that was something that for a twenty minute interview would have typically taken them two or three hours to transcribe. So, yeah. you know, those sort of time savings just means police get back out on the beat and do their job and do the things they need to do and want to do in the community and, and keep it safe. Um, so that's about the speed thing. That's for, for me what we're here for. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, lastly, I mean, in March this year, COVID hit, um, and I guess that your your technology infrastructure was and it was tested again. Um, you know, in I think it was March, people were allowed to disembark the, the Ruby Princess cruise liner, and they needed to be put in hotel quarantine. Of course. Um, so you did a lot of uh, – you used a lot of technology to do the analysis that you needed there, and you, yep. you, you clearly succeeded with that. But now that COVID is a little bit more under control in New South Wales, I mean, do you do you mm-hmm. feel now that the solutions that you've put in place have, have, have helped police better control outbreaks this year and, and, and help them sort of play yeah. their role in overcoming the crisis? I mean, in New South Wales, where, where things are looking up at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, look, I mean, every day is a, a new proposition. Uh, I hope it keeps going the way it has been because I think it's been extremely well managed in New South Wales and, 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 and keeping the economy open at the same time, balancing that, has been a fantastic job that's been done here by, you know, the bureaucracy but also government. So, look, in, in that context, I think, you know, the, the work that we've done, I think, managing a complete life cycle of someone in quarantine, the hotel, all the welfare checks they get, right down to collecting all the data that's essential to ensuring that, at the end of the day, health, we have to hand off the health so they can do contact tracing. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's just so critical. We're, 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 we are the front line of the front line in police. We're the first responders uh, to, to a lot of these things. And, and, and we've been the first responders of coronavirus and obviously working very, very tightly with, with health. But, um, you know, a lot of these virus things coming from, from the hotel quarantine, there's not a lot of, not really any community transmission in, in New South Wales. So in that context, that, 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 those data sets that we've been building around our people management system, we call it, which is uh, something that's on Dynamics, one of our platforms, um, yeah. you know, being able to build that at speed and then be able to collect the data and then provide that an analysis of, you know, you know how, how that how our operation is going. But ultimately, then, if we need to respond to it in a health sense, um, you know, it's been invaluable because that, that has obviously happened. What, you know, the people, obviously, the health want to know has been something that's happened here and, uh, you know, what, what's happened in terms of their journey through the health system um, yeah. leading up to that. So this, this platform provided uh, those, those uh, complete insights to every interaction and every, I guess, um, thing that's occurred throughout that 14-day quarantine, but also on border operations and doing things such as scanning QR codes and permits that Service New South Wales uh, provide and have had very tight integration with the work they've done there in terms of per- permits and, and border uh, cross-border checks, and um, that's ensured yep. compliance and making sure the right Victorians and Mexicans, I guess, get across the border up to New South Wales, so to speak. Yeah. yeah, for sure. All right, Gordon, we might leave it there. Thank you very much for taking the time. Congratulations again, and, and I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon. No, awesome, and thanks again to uh, yourself, Byron, and the team nice. there um, at CIO Magazine. You've done an awesome job again. Cheers. Thank, thank you very much. Speak to you later. Some great conversations there with uh, Byron Connolly and our top three CIO 50 winners for, for 2020. We hope you enjoyed it. In our next episode, we circle back and pick up on one of the key themes from our debut episode of the CIO show on AI. Of all the AI technologies in development, it appears that natural language processing is among the most widely deployed and offering the most potential moving forward. Some of the applications are fascinating with everything from determining over the phone whether people have COVID symptoms to highly nuanced sentiment analysis of phone text communications between organisations and customers. And as organisations grapple with the new reality of staff working from home, AI is also now being applied to determine people's health and mental well-being. We hope you can join us.